All right. Good morning, everybody. Please find your seats. We can uh, kind of hit the mute button out there and leave my microphone on, and we'll, we'll get into our Bible study. Hey, so I want to start off this morning and just kind of remind you of something that's a pet peeve of mine, okay? So we, I, I do like watching TV, and, um, but I hate commercials, all right? Anybody with me on that one? You get tired of the commercials? Is not the DVR the coolest invention since the television? Right? So you fast forward, you know, or whatever, the commercials. Um, in my household, if you ever happen to be at my house, or if you ever invite me to your house, which after I say this, you might not ever do that, <laughs> and your TV's on, and you don't mute the commercials, it bothers me. <laughs> my kids, I yell at them, if somebody has the remote, which typically nobody but me ever has the remote, <laughs> the commercials go to mute. If they have to be on, you know, they're going to mute. So... Don't really like that. But the commercials, obviously, are what pay for the programs, and it's all about trying to advertise, and it's trying to advertise that you can get more and more of whatever thing they're trying to sell, and they try and convince you that you pay less and less than maybe if you bought it someplace else or whatever. That's typically what advertising is all about, um, and, you know, it appeals to our capitalistic nature. You know, we want to get a good deal. We want to get the most that we can for the least possible price, and um, just kind of with that thought in mind, you know, um, I, I was thinking about what we're talking about here in Romans chapter 4. And we're studying the book of Romans. We're in chapter 4, and we're talking about salvation. We're talking about how we're justified by faith. And is that not obvious? It's obvious, but is it not very obvious that that is the greatest offer that could ever be given? And, and in other words, um, it it's offers to us the greatest possible product, if I can say that, eternal life. I mean, what's greater than something that's infinite? Nothing. And, and what's cheaper than something that's free? Nothing, right? If you were to ask my wife about her salvation testimony, which you ought to do sometime, it's a great story, she would include in that story the fact that when she understood for the first time coming up in an atheist nation and a family that you know, God was not a part of their world at all, that when she understood that there was a free gift offered to her that was eternal, and free? How could you possibly say no to that? And it never ceases to amaze me that people continue to say no to that. That just shocks me. But that is what God offers to us. And the good news for us is, is that no matter what it is you've done in your life, and in Romans chapters 1, 2, and 3, God makes it very clear that what we have all done is sin. But regardless of the level of sin that you may have been participating in, whether it seemed to be a lot compared to somebody else or not so much compared to somebody else, still God offers to you this offer that you can be just as if you had never sinned. And the Bible word for that is justified. And when you believe in him, if you just believe what he says about your sin and you agree with him about that, that's confession, you believe what he has done to atone for your sin when he died on the cross for our sins like we just sang about, then God will put his righteousness to your account. That's the word impute, imputation. He literally will impute or put his righteousness to your account. And he does that to all of us, for all of us, none of whom deserve it. That's the greatest possible offer anybody could ever give to us. Amen? It's awesome. So today what we're going to do is we are going to continue our study, and the title, I couldn't think of a better title, so I just used last week's. 
Understanding Biblical Salvation, part two. Okay, that's what chapter four is all about. Really, it would be ridiculous to try. I could come up with something different, but that's really what we're studying. And when last week we talked about justification and imputation, this week we're going to look at it in a little bit of a different light. And I use the illustration of advertising only because I want us to see as we finish chapter four today how it is we can make sure that we acquire this awesome gift. Now, it's going to be a Bible study. Are you all ready? I mean, we're getting into some stuff today. I mean, if you came here thinking, you know, 20 minutes, a little nap, you know, today's not that day. We're studying, okay? Ready? Let's pray. All right. Lord Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you for what you have done for us, God. We certainly are sinful. We understand that. You did it all when you came and died on the cross for us. You loved us so much, and your blood washes us clean. We're so, so very thankful for that. And I pray, Lord, that we would all today, if we have not already, walk out of here understanding that there is nothing more important than our eternal salvation. There's no offer that could possibly be compared to it. And I pray that you would just help us to understand as we look at this last part of Romans chapter 4, what true biblical salvation is really all about. Not to be confused with our tradition, not to be confused with our culture or our history or our thoughts or our family and and any of the things that may make us who we are. Let us, Lord, just clearly hear your voice as you speak through your word so that we can understand your will. I pray that you would change us and that we would all leave here today knowing that we know that we've put our full faith and trust in you as our Lord and Savior. We pray these things in your holy name. Amen. All right, well, the first thing that we're going to see, and it's the first point on your notes, is how exactly is this that we can acquire this great offer? Well, the first point is about how we don't acquire it, and that is not by signs. The word there is signs, not by signs. And we're going to start in verse number 9, and I'm going to read through to verse number 12, so just follow along, starting in Romans 4 and verse number 9. Cometh this blessedness then upon the circumcision only, or upon the uncircumcision also? For we say that faith was reckoned to Abraham for righteousness. How was it then reckoned? When he was in circumcision or in uncircumcision? Not in circumcision, but in uncircumcision. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had, yet being uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all them that believe, though they be not circumcised, that righteousness might be imputed unto them also." And the father of circumcision to them who are not of the circumcision only, but who also walk in the steps of that faith of our father Abraham, which he had being yet uncircumcised. Okay, so the illustration again, it's Abraham. Romans 4 is all about Abraham. We saw David a little bit last week as well. And in this case, we're going to emphasize this issue of circumcision. And it refers to the circumcision. It is like a group of people. And that's, he's talking about the Jewish people. He's talking about Israel. And Literally, as we're going to come through this, we're going to understand what that all represents. Circumcision was their sign. The nation of Israel had this sign of circumcision that was to be done as a sign between God and his chosen people through Abraham, the chosen seed that would be God's people. It's their covenant relationship with God, okay? And so God gave this sign, and that sign was to show that they indeed had made this step of choosing to follow God. That comes to us from Genesis chapter 17. And what he's referring to is in Genesis 17, verses 10 and 11, where it says, 
This is my covenant which ye shall keep between me and you and thy seed after thee. Every man child among you shall be circumcised. And it goes on and says, and it shall be a token of the covenant betwixt me and you. So in Genesis, the word that's used is a token. In Romans 4.11, it uses the word a sign. That's exactly what it means. It's the exact same thing. The token is the sign. It's something that just appears so that you can show that, hey, this is, I am one of God's people, okay? So obviously the uncircumcision refers to the Gentiles. All of the non-Jewish nations of the world, anybody who was not an, a Hebrew, an Israelite, was considered the uncircumcision. And this debate goes back and forth with Abraham in circumcision and uncircumcision. Now over time, this idea of circumcision kind of became the measuring stick for Jewish legalism. What it became was, is it was a thing that they would kind of come to this conclusion that God loves the circumcised. God loves the people who have done what he has said. In other words, it just places an external standard on some sort of thing that, that does not necessarily always reflect the attitude of the heart. And in Romans, God makes it pinpoint clear that he's much more interested in your faith and the attitude of your heart, regardless of whether the externals seem to line up the way that you would want them to or not. Because throughout the generations of the nation of Israel, what we saw is that the Jewish people preserved all of the externals, but along the line, they lost that personal connection with God. They lost the reality of the relationship. And God literally is addressing it and saying, well, then what difference does it make with circumcision? And that's kind of what we're gonna look at. By the way, people do that today. I mean, legalism is takes all forms and shapes. And maybe the most obvious form of an outward standard while frequently losing the internal reality might be the community of Amish people that live in our area. Uh, but it doesn't have to be that. It could be anybody. Listen, there's Baptists, there's people all over that, that set up some form of external standard, whether it be hair or dress or language or friendships or behaviors. These are the things that we do. These are the things that we don't do. And as long as we look okay, we must be okay. And God's saying that's not the way it is. That's not really the way it is. He asks a question right at the outset. Cometh this blessedness upon the circumcision only? or upon the uncircumcision also. And when he says this blessedness in verse number nine, he's referring back to verse number eight. Because in verse number eight, it says, blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. So this blessedness is imputed righteousness. It's being made righteous before God, okay? That's what it comes from. And so literally, these several verses that we've just looked at, these four verses or whatever they were, literally are just teaching this very simple lesson that Paul points out that Abraham received the sign of circumcision in Genesis chapter 17, but he received the imputed righteousness we saw last week back in Genesis 15. And maybe 15 to 20 years had passed between Genesis 15 and Genesis 17. So he receives the imputed righteousness before he received the sign of circumcision. Therefore, in Romans, written to the church at Rome, God makes it very clear that Abraham's example for us in the church is connected to faith in God's word, not his plastic surgery. That's what he's connecting it to. He's, he is the father of all them that believe. 
even of the uncircumcised, as long as they believe just like Abraham believed. Is that clear? That's pretty clear, isn't it? I mean, y'all come to a, for those of you that come here regularly, look, this is nothing new. I mean, this is the message that we have preached for years and years and years. And if you're new here and this is new for you, I'm so glad you're here because maybe finally you can get some understanding of exactly what God's trying to put out there. And, and we are going to look at some of these issues because when you deal with this thing, and, and in their generation, the issue was circumcision. For us, those, there are other external standards that people try and tack on to salvation. And circumcision is called a sign, and we're going to look at that in a second. But first, I want you to just understand that this, this particular ritual, this particular physical thing that took place, was so deeply ingrained in the Jewish psyche, so much so that they, even after the life of Jesus Christ, even after his death, burial, and resurrection, that the matter had to become officially addressed by the apostles. And that's your next point, that it was solved by the apostles. It became an issue even in the early church. And in Acts chapter 15, we have this story. In the first couple of verses, it says this. And certain men which came down from Judea, so these are Jewish people, they came from Judea, and they taught the brethren and said, except ye be circumcised after the manner of Moses, ye cannot be saved. When therefore Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and disputation with them, understand Paul and Barnabas are the first missionaries that are sent out to the Gentile world. They are bringing back reports of Gentile, uncircumcised people that are believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. They are being miraculously saved and God is doing amazing things. And the Jewish people in this transition time after Christ are freaking out. How is that possible? Those filthy Gentiles are coming to come into faith and yet they're not keeping the law of Moses which we think everybody has to do, right? So this is being addressed and Paul and Barnabas who now understand the transition that's in place and some of the others that did not understand it, they have this great dissension and disputation with these people from Judea. Go back to the scriptures it says, "They determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain other of them should go up to Jerusalem unto the apostles and elders." about this question. So Paul and Barnabas, they go back to Jerusalem. They're going to meet with the apostles and they're going to have an official meeting and they're going to decide once and for all, what is God doing in the world these days? Jump down to verse number five. But there rose up certain of the sect of the Pharisees. Now, whenever we read about the Pharisees, you always think that's not good. But notice, this was a certain of the sect of the Pharisees which believed. So this guy came out from this heavy religious tradition with a lot of religious baggage. And he's placing his faith in Jesus Christ, but he's still stuck kind of in his religious traditional system that he came out of. He came a certain of the sect of the Pharisees which believed, saying that it was needful to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. And the apostles and elders came together for to consider of this matter. If you took the time and continued to read down, you would ultimately see the Apostle Peter stands up. He kind of acts as the leader of the group of the apostles, and he says ultimately the conclusion in verse number 11, but we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved, even as they. In other words, there's no more need to continue to place these external requirements on people if they believe with all their heart in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Continuing on throughout the early church history, then we see this subject repeated over and over again in the epistles. Paul addresses the Galatians in chapter 5, and it says, For in Jesus Christ neither circumcision availeth anything, nor uncircumcision, but faith which worketh by love. And in chapter 6 and verse 15, virtually the same thing. For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision availeth anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creature. If any man's in Christ, he's a new creature, the Bible says, right? Old things are passed away, all things are become new. A new being. There are Jews, there are Gentiles, and like we saw last week, there is a whole new breed. It's called the church. When we believe in Jesus Christ, we are no longer Jews nor Gentiles. We are sons of God. Those are the three categories. We'll see them again this week as we continue to study. The idea is this. It's a new creature. You are born again of the Spirit into the family of God. And that happens how? Back to Galatians 5, 6, by faith. It happens by faith. Okay? If, if you remember back when we were in Romans chapter 2, a few of the verses there from verses 25 to 29 of Romans 2 says virtually the same thing. For circumcision verily profiteth if thou keep the law, but if thou be a breaker of the law, thy circumcision is made uncircumcision. Therefore, if the uncircumcision keep the righteousness of the law, shall not his uncircumcision be counted for circumcision? In other words, you replace the word circumcision and uncircumcision literally with the idea righteous or unrighteous, God's people or not. Jews or Gentiles. The whole idea is are you connected to God or not? And it's not about the outward standard. It's about what's on the inside. And it goes on and says, and shall not uncircumcision which is by nature, if it fulfill the law, judge thee who by the letter and circumcision dost transgress the law? For he is not a Jew, or in other words, a true spiritual Jew, which is one outwardly, neither is that circumcision that matters, I might add, which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew which is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit and not in the letter whose praise is not of men but of God. And literally Romans 2 is referring to a, a thing that I would call spiritual circumcision. And spiritual circumcision is referred to another place in Colossians chapter 2, again talking about our new birth, our new life in Christ. Colossians 2.11 says, in whom also ye are circumcised, notice, with the circumcision made without hands in putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. And so clearly what God is looking for is just this pure heart of faith. What he desires from us is not just some external uh, appearance. So, so here's what I want you to think about. Just consider this in the issue of circumcision, okay? Abraham had a lot of sons. We are one of them, and so, you know, let's just praise. Okay, so, you know, Father Abraham had many sons, and many sons, and so are we. Okay, he had a lot of sons. Okay, physically in that time, they were all circumcised, all of them. Once the, once the command came down, he circumcised all his sons. But the covenant only passed to Isaac, not to Ishmael. Right? Isaac had Esau and Jacob. They were both circumcised, right? But the covenant only passed to Jacob, right? So literally what God's trying to put forth is the connection of the covenant and the faith and the following. Look, you can go from Genesis 3 to Genesis 17 from Adam to Abraham, and nobody was circumcised between Adam and Abraham, but yet certainly people were saved, right? 
So it's not about just this external thing. This, this covenant and circumcision had nothing to do with Abraham's salvation. It was his faith that secured the righteousness. You got to get that. You got to get that. So it says in verse number 11 that circumcision is a sign. It's a sign. And he received the sign of circumcision, it says. Now, we all know a sign exists simply to direct you towards something else. You're looking for something and you don't know how to find it. You see a sign that says it's over there. The sign is not the thing. The sign points you to the thing, right? So if you have to use the restroom and you see the sign for the restroom, okay, you don't do what you need to do on the sign, right? You go to the place that is the real thing so that you can do what you need to do. Now, that's a weird example to bring up in church, but you got it now. I know you got it. I want you tracking with me. Circumcision is just a sign. It's pointing towards something that is a reality, and that's the whole point. I want to draw your attention to 1 Corinthians chapter number 1, verses 22 and verse 23. This is a very important verse of Scripture. It says, for the Jews, notice who? The Jews require a sign. And the Greeks seek after wisdom, but we, the church, preach Christ crucified, and unto the Jews a stumbling block, and unto the Greeks foolishness. So once again, we have all three groups. We have the Jews. They require signs. We have the Gentiles, the Greeks. They seek after wisdom and knowledge and all of the intellectual stuff. But we, the church, we just preach Christ, man. Because at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter about any of that other stuff, the signs or the intellect or any of that stuff. It's just Jesus. That's all it's all about. And those are the three groups, and that's how it lays out. But notice who it is that requires the sign. It's the Jews. The Jews require a sign. And there are some things that are listed as signs in the Bible, and I have some in your notes for you. The first one is the Sabbath. You may wonder, why is it that we don't, as a church, respect the seventh day, Saturday, like in the Old Testament, as a holy day? Why do we not respect the Sabbath? You know there's groups that say we should respect the Sabbath today. Well, the Sabbath is clearly given as a sign, and it was given as a sign to Israel. In Ezekiel chapter 20 and verse number 20, he tells them, he says, And hallow or make holy my Sabbaths, and they shall be a sign between me and you, that ye may know that I am the Lord your God. So the Seventh-day Adventists and groups like that that want to make clear that, hey, you've got to continue to keep the Sabbath. No, the Sabbath is a sign. It was a sign given to Israel, and that's why we don't need to keep messing with it. Okay, one man observes a day as more holy than another. Let him do it if he wants to. But if you don't, that's okay too. That's what it says in Romans 14. Another one is tongues. People argue about speaking in tongues, okay? But tongues also were a sign. They were a sign to unbelievers, but literally to Israel, if we're going to take literally what God said in 1 Corinthians chapter number 1. In 1 Corinthians 14 and verse 22, it says very clearly, wherefore tongues are for a sign. Not to them that believe. So if you're a believer and you're practicing this, thinking that somehow or another it edifies me as a believer, I'm sorry, that's not biblical. Not to them that believe, uh, but to them that believe not. But prophesying serveth not for them that believe not, but for them which believe. So all the different groups of churches, and I'm not knocking anybody, I'm just trying to teach you today that all the different Pentecostal charismatic groups that want to emphasize the speaking in tongues thing, they don't understand that tongues are for a sign and signs are for the Jews. And that is not the way by which we receive any kind of special grace from God. Absolutely not. 
But the third thing I want you to see, and maybe this is the most important for us to really learn, is that baptism is not a sign. And there's a lot of people that want to say that it is. There's a lot of people that want to say, in the old covenant of faith with Abraham, the sign was circumcision. In the new covenant of faith with the church, the sign is baptism. But never in your Bible are you going to find a verse of Scripture that says, baptism is a sign. It's not a sign. In 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 21, it calls it something else. It calls it a figure. It says, the like figure whereunto even baptism doth also now save us. Now, just in case you're going to get confused about how baptism saves you, it makes it very clear in parentheses, not the putting away the filth of the flesh. It's not the dunking in the water that saves you. It's not the washing of anything on the outside of your body. It's not the water, but the answer of a good conscience toward God. Because even water baptism is just a picture or a figure of the true spiritual baptism of being immersed into the body of Christ at the moment of faith by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But there are groups that would be of what we would call Reformed theology, Presbyterians and groups like that, that think that baptism is the sign. They think that it is the new sign of the new covenant. And last week we talked a little bit, I told you it's Bible study day. Last week we talked a little bit about dispensational theology. If you weren't here, you don't remember, don't worry, it's okay. Basically, it's the, it's, the, it's the method by which we believe the scriptures are most accurately understood. The idea that there are different periods of time throughout history of man where God dispenses his grace in different ways to different groups of people in different times throughout history. The other side of the coin, if you do not want to accept the idea of dispensational theology, you are left with what is typically called covenant theology. And the covenant theologians emphasize this idea that baptism is the sign of the new covenant. And basically what they're going to teach is this, is that when you sprinkle a baby and they take the the little babies. Now last week we had the dedication of the families with their little babies, made it very clear that that's not what we were doing. Okay, When you sprinkle the baby, basically you are entering them into the covenant with God. And because that theological system heavily emphasizes God's predestination and eternal election of certain people to go to heaven and others to go to hell, they will typically then also take it to the next logical step which says, because I have baptized my baby and sprinkled some water on him when he was a baby, that enters him into the new covenant and God is now somehow obligated to elect that child. That's crazy. But that's what they believe. That's really what they believe. That's why they baptize babies. Why else? Because the Bible has no explanation, no illustration, no command whatsoever for baptizing babies. But they think that it's a sign. They think that that's how it's supposed to work. They might go to a place like Mark 16, the end of the Gospel of Mark. And it says in Mark 16, 16, he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. They'll say, see, see? Well, you've got to keep reading. But he that believeth not shall be damned. Now, why does it not say, but he that believeth not and is baptized not? Why does it not say that? Because the real element of the gospel is believing. And yes, a true believer will get baptized, of course. But it's not about baptism. Paul said, God didn't send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. So that real element of the gospel is without a doubt believing. But notice if you keep reading in Mark 16, and these signs shall follow them that believe. 
and my name shall, and here's some signs. These are signs that would have existed in the early church of the first century. They'll cast out devils. They'll speak with new tongues. They'll take up serpents. There's your snake handlers. They drink any deadly thing. It shall not hurt them. They'll lay hands on the sick and they shall recover. So you got your miracle healings. And all of those things, and listen, some of you may be getting nervous. You're thinking, man, I don't believe you don't believe in that stuff. Well, he said those signs will follow those that believe. I, I'm telling you, they are signs. That's the whole point. You got to get the idea. They are signs. They're just pointing to something else. And once the real something else shows up, you don't need the sign anymore. Amen? And once we have the ultimate, complete, full revelation of God's will, there's no need to point to anything else because we have it very clearly written for us. And that's what he's trying to say. And circumcision is nothing but a sign. Okay? It's also called a seal. It's called a seal. The seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had. But it's not our seal, right? Our seal is the Holy Spirit of God, Ephesians 4.30, and grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. Our seal is the Holy Spirit that lives inside of us because of our faith. So we are Abraham's seed, but we are his spiritual seed, not his physical seed. Therefore, we inherit Abraham's spiritual promises not physical promises like a land grant. We're going to see that in just a second. So the second way, okay, it's not by signs. That's not how you get in. And it's also not by the law. That's the second way. It's not by the law. Let's keep reading back in Romans 4, starting in verse 13. For the promise that he should be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if they which are of the law be heirs, Faith is made void, and the promise made of none effect, because the law worketh wrath. For where no law is, there's no transgression. Therefore, it's of faith that it might be by grace. To the end, the promise might be sure to all the seed, not to that only which is of the law, but to that also which is of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all who believe, in other words. That's literally what he says. And so, before we start talking about the law, I just want to point out this idea. He starts out with this promised inheritance. This promised inheritance, it says, for the promise that he should be heir of the world. Literally, Abraham, just like Noah, when he steps off the ark, inherits the world. That's pretty cool, right? Now, he was promised, without a doubt, a literal, physical piece of land. This piece of land that would belong to Israel, and ultimately the plan was that this piece of land of Israel and the Jewish people would be the head of all nations and from there rule over the face of the entire planet. That's God's plan. That has not happened in the past. That is not happening now. But it will happen when the Lord Jesus Christ returns. It will happen in the time we refer to as the millennial kingdom and go on beyond the millennial kingdom. And that's important to understand. It says back in Genesis 17 when God was talking about that in verse number 8, And I will give unto thee and to thy seed after thee the land wherein thou art a stranger, all the land of Canaan, notice, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. 
So this possession of Israel of their land is not something that would have been temporary. It's not something that can just be taken away. It's not something that can be invaded by other nations. It's not something that the group of nations united together can decide that they don't have to give it back to Israel. It was given to them for an everlasting possession. That's an important distinction. Again, we'll go back to our three groups. There's Jews, there's Gentiles, and the church. And each of the three have a different inheritance in eternity. So you need to understand that if the Jews, the physical seed of Abraham, get the world. Now, get your pencils ready. This is good. If the Jews get the world, the Gentiles and the church don't. You get that? I mean, that, that, should I say it again? If the Jews get the world, the Gentiles and the church don't. Why do we fight for it then? Why do we fight for it? So in eternity, and very quickly, I just gave you some info for further Bible study. We don't have time to dig all this out, but again, the Jews get the, the world. Therefore, their inheritance is the new earth. Revelation 21 and verse number one talks about the new heavens and the new earth that are gonna come down at the end of the millennial time. And so the Jews are the ones who are gonna inherit the new earth after this earth is burned up and we get a new one. The church very clearly is going to inherit not the new earth, but the new Jerusalem. That is absolutely crystal clear. The church, according to Ephesians chapter five, is the bride of Christ. And a little further down in Revelation chapter 21, we see very clearly that the bride, the lamb's wife, comes down from heaven, the new Jerusalem. The new Jerusalem is called the lamb's wife, the bride. It is the dwelling place for the real bride of Christ, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is our eternal inheritance. And what's left over? The Gentiles get the new heavens. Well, that's kind of interesting. Well, in Deuteronomy chapter 32 and verse number eight, it says, when the Most High, God himself, divided to the nations their inheritance when he separated the sons of Adam and set the bounds of the people according to the number of the children of Israel, God set some inheritance in place. And what he set in place does not change in all of eternity. He would be referring back even to Deuteronomy chapter four and verse number 19. If you were to read that whole story, God is warning the Israelites through Moses just before they cross into the promised land. Look, when you go in there, don't make some big mistakes like worshiping the stars of heaven and all that sort of thing. And when he's doing that, he says in verse number 19 of Deuteronomy four, lest thou lift up thine eyes unto heaven and when thou seest the sun and the moon and the stars, even all the host of heaven, shouldest be driven to worship them and serve them. Notice, which the Lord thy God hath divided unto all nations under the whole heaven. The inheritance of the Gentile nations in eternity that ultimately repent and turn to Jehovah God is to populate outer space. You think that sounds crazy? Just believe what the Bible says. That's what it says. That's what it's all about. I can't even fathom anything like that. Space travel, you know, uh, but that's what it's all about. Listen, if we are to continue to reproduce and man never dies because there's never sin, Earth's going to run out of space, man, <laughs> right? There's got to be some place for him to go, and that's how it divides out. That's how it divides out. Why do I bring all that up? I literally bring it up because the Bible here makes it very clear. Abraham inherits the world. There are three different groups. He's made it very clear to disseminate between those three, and I want you to understand how they are different. So now let's get back to the law. Again, the story here is very clear. Abraham was made righteous before the law shows up. The law shows up with Moses. 
If you study your Bible chronology, Moses is six generational steps below Abraham. Okay? So six generational steps below Abraham makes Abraham his great, 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 great grandfather. Yes. Four greats. Okay? So Abram is declared righteous long before the law ever showed up. So the issue of the law does not factor in whatsoever into this imputed righteousness that he received. It was by faith and nothing to do with the law. And according to verse number 14, very clearly, for if they which are of the law be heirs, faith is made void and the promise made of none effect. So we're wasting our time talking about faith and there's no need for any kind of a promise because you just worked your way to earn it because you're so awesome and you keep the law. But that's not the case. Because the purpose of the law is wrath. The purpose of God giving the law is judgment. That's what it's all about. I mean, think about it. What is the law? Rules. What do rules require? Obedience. Which means that when we disobey, there's going to be punishment. That's wrath. That's judgment. That's what the law is for, right? It says in verse number 15, for where no law is, there's no transgression. Now that's a very interesting statement. Where no law is, there's no transgression. In other words, it makes sense, right? If there are no rules, it's impossible to disobey. How can I be held accountable for disobeying a rule that doesn't exist? Right? That's basically what he's saying here, right? Notice in 1 John chapter 3 and verse number 4, a definition of sin. Whosoever committeth sin transgresseth also the law, for sin is the transgression of the law. That's what sin is. If we flipped ahead a couple of chapters to Romans 7, verses 6 through 8, it says this. But now we are delivered from the law, that being dead wherein we were held, that we should serve in newness of spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? God forbid. Nay, I had not known sin, but by the law. For I had not known lust, except the law had said, Thou shalt not covet. But sin, taking occasion by the commandment, wrought in me all manner of concupiscence. For without the law, sin was dead. Now we'll see that in more detail when we get to Romans chapter 7. But literally all he's saying on the very simplest level is a man cannot be accused of transgressing if he didn't know right from wrong. Does that make sense? That's what he's literally saying. So when you start thinking about this issue of how do I know who's accountable for what? Your mind may go to the issue of small children. Mine does. What happens to small children who die? You ever wonder that? I mean, you want to believe they're okay, but does God really say that? I mean, they never really knew good from evil, right? By the way, if you're in here, it's too late for y'all. We're, we're old enough to know, right? But the little ones that are too young to understand yet, and God forbid some tragedy happens and we lose them, what about them? Well, in Deuteronomy chapter 1, there's the reference to that kind of a situation in verse number 39, where God says, Moreover, your little ones, which he said should be a prey, and your children, which in that day had no knowledge between good and evil. God recognizes that there is some age at which a child recognizes good from evil. What is that age? Well, you know, I don't know. We can argue about what we think it is. 
But there is some age when they are, they are too young, certainly, to understand. They shall go in thither, and unto them will I give it, and they shall possess it. So there is an inheritance given to those who are too young to know the difference. Okay? But don't kid yourself. Babies are sinners. Uh, even if only by nature. Right? I mean, they are. Look, when a baby dies, roll with me for a second. The fact that it happens, the fact that a, that a human being dies proves their sin because the wages of sin is death. Isn't that what the Bible says? I mean, it proves, that, I mean, if there was zero sin, why would they die, right? It exists, okay? In 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 22, it says this, for as in Adam, all die. All of us that are born physically are born in Adam's sinful image. It goes on and says, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. So the babies are born in Adam's sinful nature. Although really, it's no fault of their own. I mean, it's Adam's fault, right? It's not their fault. Well, if they can die through no fault of their own, then they can go to heaven without receiving Christ because the Lord makes the decision for them and his blood made the provision for them because they were not to the point yet where they were able to make their own decision. And that's how it works out. In Romans chapter 5 and verse 13, it says it this way. For until the law, sin was in the world. Listen, from Adam until Moses, men were sinners. I mean, sin existed in Adam, right? But sin was not, is not imputed where there is no law. You could take it to the next step of logical um, understanding. I would say, similarly, people who have mental illness, they're incompetent mentally to understand and discern good and evil, also can fall into that category. They can't possibly make their own decision. They don't understand. And even there's a hint of that in the book of Jonah at the very end. God does not destroy Jonah. And among the reasons given in the last verse, it says, and should I not spare Nineveh, that great city wherein are more than six score thousand persons that cannot discern between their right hand and their left hand and also much cattle. And God says, look, there's people here that are innocent. It's not their fault. They can't even discern. It's impossible. I'm going to spare Nineveh. I'm going to do it. And literally, the lesson that's coming through, the, the main lesson coming through Romans, it's not by signs or any external religious standard. It's not by the law or keeping it or any works of righteousness that we've done. It is simply, literally, our third point, by faith. Obviously, this is very clear, okay? Verses 17 to 22. Follow along. As it is written, I have made thee a father of many nations before him whom he believed, even God, who quickeneth the dead and calleth those things which be not as though they were, who against hope believed in hope that he might become the father of many nations according to that which was spoken, so shall thy seed be. And being not weak in faith, he considered not his own body now dead when he was about an hundred years old, neither yet the deadness of Sarah's womb. He staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strong in faith, giving glory to God and being fully persuaded that when, uh, what he had promised, he was able also to perform, and therefore it was imputed to him for righteousness. 
So Abraham believed in God, this God who was able to quicken the dead, bring life out of death. And literally the application is the deadness of Abraham's and Sarah's reproductive ability. It was physically impossible for people of that age to conceive on their own, but God said he would do it, and Abraham believed that God would do it because he said that he would do it. And it says in verse 17, this interesting phrase, I like it, and calleth those things which be not as though they were. That's imputation. (laughs) That's imputation. God puts something on you that otherwise was not. He put life in Abraham and Sarah's womb. He gave life where there was death. And in our life spiritually, he gives us righteousness where there was none. That's what God does. That's imputation. So by now, coming through Romans literally, it's hopefully fairly obvious, right? Faith alone in God, in God's word, is all that's required for salvation. I don't think we really need to dig any deeper to study that. It's so crystal clear all through the scriptures. But what I do want to see in these few verses and point out to you is that Paul here gives a more detailed description of faith, which I think is enlightening. I think it's helpful, okay? And so I'm calling it steps to progressive faith, as we see written about in these verses. Romans 12 and verse number 3 says this. You got to see this. Romans 12, 3 says this. For I say, through the grace given unto me, To every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, according as God hath dealt to every man the measure of faith. So what we see is that people will demonstrate various levels of faith in their lives as they continue to grow in Christ. And what I see in this passage are these three levels discuss. The first one is weak faith. The first one is weak faith, verses 18 and 19, where it says that Abraham, against hope, believed in hope. It's kind of a funny way to say it. Against hope, he believed in hope. Just imagine if you were Abraham. Imagine receiving that word from God originally back in Genesis, and and you're getting old, and you have no children, you've got a servant in your household, and you're hoping he's going to be your heir because, you know, It's just not working. And so he is the one, and he gets God's promise of children. He knew his body, Sarah's body, weren't going to be able to do that. But it was good news. And he he wanted to hope that it was true. And he, man, I hope so. And maybe against all odds, against all reason, against all understanding, he hoped in hope, (laughs) And his faith maybe wasn't the strongest in the world, but he was willing to put it out there. It was small faith, okay? And you know what? That's how faith starts. Faith doesn't just start from day one just being super strong and believing every detail of everything. You start with small steps, and that's what we see going on here because even a little bit of faith can accomplish great things, amen? Notice in Mark chapter 9, verses 23 and 24, good illustration of this. Jesus said unto him, If thou canst believe, all things are possible to him that believeth. And straightway the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe. Here it is. Help thou my unbelief. That's weak faith. But it's something. It's a start. 
It's a place to start. Lord, I believe. There's stuff I can't believe, but I believe and help me in the areas I can't yet believe. It's a weak faith, but it is faith. Sometimes you sit in church and you hear somebody preach a sermon and maybe the Holy Spirit convicts you of sin and maybe as you're being convicted of some things in your life, you begin to wonder, have you had enough faith really to trust God for salvation? You begin to doubt, are you really saved or are you not really saved? Does that ever happen to you? It happens to a lot of people. And you begin to wonder whether or not your faith really mattered and whether you were really born again and you doubt even if you're saved. But can I tell you that even a weak faith is enough to secure salvation? I wrote it this way. Salvation is not dependent on the amount of faith. It's dependent on the object of faith. Whatever faith you have, listen, any amount of faith in Jesus Christ and his atonement will save a man as long as he places that faith in Jesus Christ alone, not mingled with works, not mingled with anything else. If whatever it is you got, you put it all in the basket that says, I believe in whatever Jesus says, that's enough. That's enough. And that's good news because if you're here today and you're like, wow, I've never really you know, been a religious man. I've never really studied the Bible to understand all this stuff, but man, I, I, I believe I'm a sinner. I believe Jesus really existed and really did all those things, and I'm willing to trust that. That's, a, that's all you need to start. That's all you need to start. That's weak faith. The next step I'm calling steady faith. Where in verse 20 it says, he staggered not at the promises. If you don't stagger, you're steady, Right? I compare it with James chapter 1, verses 6 through 8. It says, But let him ask in faith, nothing wavering. See, to waver or to stagger, they're kind of similar. For he that wavereth is like a wave of the sea, driven with the wind and tossed. For let not that man think that he shall receive anything of the Lord. A double-minded man is unstable in all of his ways. So steady faith begins to become more sure of things. And and as you grow in your faith, what you find is is that you start to trust God more. You start to believe more of the things that he says. You start to put into practice in your life things that become more steady and solid. And you don't stagger anymore. You don't waver anymore. You don't question anymore. You know some things are true. And maybe the most important thing that you need to be absolutely sure of is your salvation, your eternal security. Okay, you trusted God for salvation, but why keep doubting? Why live in fear? You need to get to where your faith is steady enough to believe that he said it's sure, and you can be sure. 1 John 5, 13, These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye may be pretty sure that you have eternal life. That's not what it says. That you may know that you have eternal life. God wants you to know this is important, and that you may believe on the name of the Son of God. Look, if a weak faith is enough for salvation, a steady faith is enough for service. It's enough for service. You can start to serve. You can start to do things because now you're more established. And the last thing is a strong faith. A strong faith. What it refers to in verses 20 and 21, 22, being fully persuaded. That's where you want to get. That's kind of the end of the road of spiritual growth, right? So I put it this way. As faith grows doubt dies right if you have just a little bit of faith you got a lot of doubt right but as faith continues to grow doubt wanes 
until you have a lot of faith and very little doubt. And that's where you want to be. That's growth in Christ. Because listen, a lot of people trust God in general. But not a lot of people trust God in specifics. <laughs> oh, in general, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. In general, I believe that He's got my back. In general, I believe... Okay. But in specifics, when the details and trials of life come to you, will you stand on his word and do what he said, even if it doesn't make sense? Or it may even run contrary to some of your circumstances. Will you do that? That's a strong faith. Fully persuaded. Persuaded. Convinced. A person who is convinced has convictions. They stand. They stand strong. And a strong faith is required to achieve sanctification. See, to him it was imputed righteousness. To be pure and holy and right and walk with God in accordance with his word and give no place to the devil and do what he says. That's a strong faith. That's a, that's a mature Christian. And we see these things laid out for us in Romans chapter 4. Again, the basic lesson is salvation Imputed righteousness, justification is by faith alone. I think we got that, but the fact that he lays out some of these things, I just wanted to teach you, I wanted to encourage you, I wanted to help you today. As always, the most important question possibly that anyone could ever wrestle with is the last one I have for you in your notes. Do you have what the Bible calls in another place the faith of a mustard seed? Tiny, tiny little seed, right? But it can grow into a great plant. Do you have enough faith like that of a mustard seed, even just a little, to trust God for your salvation? The last few verses here in this chapter, and we'll be done, verses 23 to 25, it says this. Now it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but for us also, to whom it shall be imputed, if we believe on him that raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered for our offenses and was raised again for our justification. That's the gospel. The death, the burial, and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe the gospel and you also will be saved. God will declare you righteous just as if you'd never sinned. It has nothing to do with signs. It has nothing to do with your good works. It's just by faith in what God said. That's it. And what I want to do is just offer that to you. If you're here today and I don't care if you've been in church all your life or maybe you just happened to walk in. Maybe nobody invited you, you just showed up. If God's speaking to your heart and you'd like to make that commitment, I'd like to give you the chance to make that commitment. So if you just bow your heads and close your eyes, I'd just like to pray for you. And we're gonna do that now.